Discussing the latest in employment law, it's the Employment Huddle Podcast with Guy Allen and Samantha Turetsky. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our mid-February episode of the Employment Huddle. Hope everyone's well. Good afternoon, Samantha. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Guy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Year's getting started. And we're uh, right back into things, right? Like, like, we, like we're never just like we left off. Keep rocking and rolling, right? Can you believe it's almost March? It's almost March. Where'd the winter go? Where'd the winter go? Thank goodness it's been a quick one. <laughs> but it's still there, though. It's still we can't get deceived into thinking winter's gone just because it's like March and spring training started. Because it could March could still be a little bit of a rough month, even early April. But certainly the lights at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, so, I can't so, wait for so, the days to get longer, some sunshine. I'm I'm counting down the days. <laughs> yeah, I know. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. So before we get started, I, I was thinking that because there hasn't been a lot of terribly new developments in, in the law since our last podcast, that it would be a good time just to take a step back and just go through some basic concepts that we continually hear that our employers and clients may have a misunderstanding about. So we just wanted to, I thought it'd be a good idea, maybe you and I go back and forth about things that, that we see that we think are basic, but just want to make sure our listeners know about it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Some employment law 101. Yeah, really, really quick. But before we do that, I got a big announcement to make that I think our listeners should know. Not too long ago, Samantha got engaged. Oh, Samantha got engaged, and I am so, so happy for her. That's a very big announcement. It's more important than anything that we do here. So super congratulations to Samantha and her fiancé, Stefan. Congratulations. Thank you, Guy. You threw a little curveball You there. weren't expecting it, right? You weren't expecting that. <laughs> I was like, where is this going? Well, I hope you, you don't like announce your retirement well, or something. No, never. So let me ask you this. Were you, were you expecting the engagement? Like, when it happened, or a little surprise, what was going on? Quickly, what do you want to do? Behind the scenes? Yeah, a little behind the scenes. Because, you know, very happy for you. Ring's gorgeous. Guys look great. But were you expecting it? Not expecting it? What do you think? I knew the engagement was coming. I knew that it was in the near future. I was very shocked when it happened. He really did a phenomenal job of keeping me on my toes and getting one over on me. That's the hard. That's not easy to do. It was very hard. That Especially is, me. You know me. I know. I know I know, everything. I know. Always one step ahead. Always one step ahead. Always keeping me on track. And the fact that Stefan was able to surprise you was a, was a wonderful thing. I don't think anyone has ever pulled off a surprise on me before. Wow. So I think I am still a little shocked that he was able to do it. But all the credit to him. It was great. Well, I think that's a harbinger of good things to come. We're excited for you. And when, when do you think so? What, what you, wedding date? What, I mean, year from now, two years, what are you thinking? I think sometime next year. Next we're, year. We're still early on in the planning process. That's so exciting. That's this, so exciting. This podcast is soon going to turn into my wedding planning podcast because Guy is so excited to start planning a wedding. I am. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to talk about food list, music, venue, whatever you need. I, I'm ready. I'll be the mixologist at the bar. Guys are ready. The mixologist, the officiant, the menu taste there. You name it. He's doing it. So I'm in. I'll be here to answer all the phone calls. Guy will be off tasting a menu, viewing venues. I'm ready. That's great. I'm ready. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to go. So super congratulations. Thank you so much. To you. And I'm looking forward to the wedding. Yeah, I can't wait. We will fill everybody fun. in on what happens for Yeah, sure. this podcast might take a turn. It will. It will. <laughs> but until then, I guess we got to get back to what we said we are going to do, which is a little plumbing law one-on-one. Yeah. Right. Let's get to it. So let's get to it. So I'll I'll go first, and we'll just go back and forth. What we think are like basic things. So big thing for me: retaliation. A lot of misconception about it. I feel like every time an employer—not every time, but often—when an employer makes is making a decision as to whether to terminate someone, 
one of the things that I often hear, oh, no, I don't know if we can because it could be viewed as retaliation. Mm-hmm. Or we can't do this because it's retaliation. Not everything is retaliation. And the, the thing is, it's actually, it's pretty narrow. In order for a plea to assert like a valid retaliation claim, it has to be a protected activity that they're being retaliated from. So textbook example, if they file a discrimination complaint mm-hmm. and they get fired, yes, textbook retaliation. They complain of unsafe work conditions textbook retaliation. Those things, because they're protected activity under the law, are are, are retaliation. Now, conversely, if they submit a complaint because they don't like the color of their boss's shirt every day, or or they think the boss is treating them not nicely just because, that's not retaliation. There's no retaliation there. It's got to be the protected activity. I feel like it just get that gets lost a lot. What do you think? Right. I mean, this is one of your like mostly crazed. I get points. crazed about it. Um, guy talks about this all the time. I think the example you always say is if there's some animosity towards like what, what sports team people like, right? If you're just having a conversation every day, someone comes into your office every day saying your team stinks, your team stinks. That's not a protected activity. You cannot go. And say it's retaliation because so-and-so is being mean to me because I like the Mets and they like the Yankees. Right. That's not a protected reason. Right. Right. That's not saying so-and-so is mean to me because of my race, gender, age, et cetera. Saying someone is mean to me or treating me differently because I like a certain baseball team is not a protected activity. Right. And so that's an extreme example. And Samantha's right. I use that all the time because that's just, that makes the point. It has to be the underlying complaint. It's not the complaint itself. It's what's underlying it. Is the underlining, if it's a complaint at all, if what's underlying it is protected, yeah, then you have to worry about it. The best examples are if someone makes a discrimination complaint, then it's almost like, oh boy, it's really hard to fire someone within at least six, seven months. For his example, like pregnancy, and we get this a lot, believe mm-hmm. me, where an employer says, all right, you know, I'm about to terminate a woman, but before I get the words out of my mouth, she says, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. And then you go ahead and fire. That's tough. That's tough. Unless you listen to your employment lawyer and when you're ready to take an adverse action, you document it, you email it, you, you have that time-stamped, date-stamped email saying, this is what we're going to do tomorrow. This way, if an employee comes in in that example and becomes protected because they let you know they're pregnant or they have injury or illness or a real discrimination complaint, you could say, okay, that's great, that's wonderful, but I'm really sorry, we have to let you go. And it's not because of your pregnancy. It's because of these nine things that we've been telling you about. You've been absent. You've been late from work. You're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. That's why it's so important for employers because retaliation is so prevalent. It's always on the tip of everyone's tongue. And employers are savvy. They know. Like they know. They they know when the handwriting is on the wall. I can't tell you how often we see it. It's always generally the employers are not performing well. They know they're not performing well. And before the employer can get their act together and, and get the termination papers and things like that, they file a complaint of some sort that may be protected because it's, you know, because it's based on a race, discrimination, disability, medical condition, pregnancy, unsafe work conditions, things like that. My boss is harassing me. They feel like they can protect themselves. But as long as you doc- have the stuff documented mm-hmm. about what your plans are and make them definitive, I plan to terminate so-and-so tomorrow at four o'clock, then you're good. Then right. you're good because you're documented before someone can scream retaliation. And I think you bring up a good point of another Employment Law 101 is the documentation process of documenting low-performing employees. How many times do we get a phone call that says, hey, I want to terminate this person, but they actually just made a complaint, but we wanted to terminate them. They've been such a problem employee. And what's our first question? 
okay, what does their file look like? What documentation do you have about their poor performance? What do you have documented about their attitude, their insubordination? And the answer is nothing. Well, we don't we don't track that. We don't write it down. It's just a lot of verbal conversations. Right. I just know that this is how they are. That is not going to help anybody. No, it's not. And that's why another one of my favorite things is email somebody. Email yourself. Email if you if you're planning on either doing something or there's or there's a there are problems with someone's performance, email it. Lots of email is used against employers because people say things that they shouldn't say. Right. But but employers can use to their advantage because if I'm gonna terminate Samantha, let's say, and I want to do, I'm going to do it tomorrow at five o'clock. I'm going to email myself, note to myself, I'm going to terminate Samantha tomorrow at five o'clock. Or I'm going to email a partner. Hey, just want to make sure we're going to go through with this. I plan to do this tomorrow at five o'clock. Email it. Email is a beautiful thing because it's mm-hmm. date stamped. It's time stamped. So if anyone says, oh, I, and then because in the in- interim, if the employee follows a discrimination employee, for instance, this way, if and they scream, oh my God, I was retaliating, the answer is no, we plan to do this before. Look, here's the record, timestamp, date stamp, and here are all the performance issues that are documented. Right. Honestly, as far as you know, documenting performance, I know it sounds like a big pain in the butt, and it is. You hear me say this too. I don't care if it's on a coffee stained paper napkin, but if we just write it down and put it in the file or, or however we do it and record it, really will help against these retaliation claims, which everybody throws around, even if it's not necessarily retaliation. I think retaliation and hostile work environment are two the two biggest Big things. phrases that everybody knows, right? Big, every, it's just a common phrase right, now. Right, right. It's become part of like our everyday vernacular, right? And hostile work environment, hostile work environment. But you're right. It's a good point, like with retaliation. I want right. to talk, talk about that. What do you think? What's the, what's the big misconception with that? Right. Well, Sim- similar lines, but... Right. So I think most people generally think that a hostile work environment as it's thrown around in everyday language is just equates to my boss is mean to me or my boss has a really big attitude or my boss is really mean to everybody. That is not a hostile work environment. So I don't know about you, but I feel like when when people throw those words around, I'm like the bearer of bad news. I'm always like, well, that's actually not a hostile work environment. Right. That's not actually retaliation. Right. Exactly. I feel like I'm the one that no one wants at the party, right? right. Because I'm you raining are. on the parade. You are. Certainly, um, if you're speaking to, yeah, if you're speaking to an employee. Yeah, that's right. That's that's exactly right. And and you know, the case law says that the discrimination laws that protect all this stuff. They're not civility codes. So you're not guaranteed when you come into work that it's going to be a complete panacea and everyone's going to be you know, sweet and charming to you. Like Samantha said, if your boss, just because your boss is mean to you, as long as it's not based upon a protected characteristic, it's, it's not actionable. It can be as mean, as mean as you want. Now, of course, you know, there's a line. You can't, you know, torture someone or be, you know, physically abused, obviously. But just being mean or not being a nice boss or your colleagues not being nice to you, unless it's based upon a protected activity. Like, if, so if your boss is not nice to you because of your race or because you have a medical condition, that's one thing. Yeah, that could be a hostile work environment. But if it's because you like the Yankees and not the Mets, of course I do, but mm-hmm. no dice. You know, right. it, it just doesn't work. And and we get that a lot. Probably right. You're right. Probably right up there with retaliation. Right. Like on our everyday. I don't know. Those are I guess the two words that seem to seep out to the general public. And right. and, and and that's what right. employees right. run with. And sometimes it, it creates problems for employers because even though they're not actionable, employees bring claims anyway. Because it doesn't cost anything to file in the administrative agencies in the state division or you EOC. And sometimes employees just do it. And employers in the position of having to defend themselves. But one way they do it, or one we do it as representing employers, is to really point out, hey, this has nothing to do with someone's protected race or category. And, and, you know, another thing with hostile work environment, a lot of times, you know, you may have a boss who's just not nice to everybody. 
not nice across the right. board to everybody. So, you know, one of the questions we'll ask, whether it's employer or employee, okay, so-and-so general manager, he was really mean to understand you and you think it's because you're a, you're a woman, but what's he like to the other men in the group? Oh, he's just as mean, if not worse. So it's hard to say that what he is doing or she is doing is because we're protected class. It's, he's mean to everybody. It's not a, as an employer. We don't condone that. It's not a great defense to say, yeah, he or she was a jerk, a real jerk, but it wasn't because of anything protected. We don't like that. Down to the nuts and bolts, that is the that is the distinction. If someone's mean to you or not nice, it's got to be because one of those protected areas. Now, maybe we should talk a little, keep saying protected. What's protected? Maybe we can just talk about that. So you'll find a complaint mm-hmm. that is based upon a protected activity, which is might be complaining about, like we talked about, unsafe office conditions or because of a medical condition or you need an accommodation or because of your your race or your gender or right or taking a protected leave exactly that's a big one you know you go on say you're pregnant you go out on pregnancy leave and then you take your fmla leave on top of that and the employer's like you know we have to let you go because we're reorganizing well unfortunately if, if you're coming right off a of leave generally that's gonna be a protected mm-hmm. job and you can't do things like that so right so i would say leave is a another protected Activity. If people think they're whistleblowing, right, that's huge. That's huge. New York labor law has expanded. It used to be whistleblowing was only protected if you were blowing the whistle on a basically a health organization that would have an impact on the health and safety of the public. Now it's a lot broader. And if there are, you know, financial improprieties, things like that, that, you know, you think you're pointing out things that are illegal in the organization, you certainly could have a retaliation claim. So yeah, whistleblowing is another is is a big one. Anything else that we're missing in terms of protected Classes or activity? Um, Requesting protected accommodations. Something about medical, but accommodations and the accommodation process is also something that is part of our Employment Law 101 today. So we have hostile work environment retaliation. Those are the big kind of misconceptions. It's based upon not understanding what's a protected activity. And we talked about that. But let's a perfect segue into the accommodation issue that, and I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, but it just, it keeps coming up because of all the leaves that are now available or people just very savvy and very hypersensitive to medical conditions and things like that. Take us through the accommodation process and and what that's about and and, and what we're seeing, especially like with the remote from work and and, at home and remote work and and, and the challenges that presents in the accommodation process. So we we are seeing a lot of requests for accommodations, whether that's an uptick in medical conditions or, like you said, this new work from home world that we are seeing. The big phrases for the accommodation process in New York State is the interactive process. In New York City, it's called the cooperative dialogue. The guy's making fun of me. Because you learned that from me. These buzzword, great party chatter, right? The co- Do they engage in the cooperative dialogue <laughs> with you? Right. So let's say an employee comes to you with a request for an accommodation. It has to be tied to a medical condition or some sort of protected need. It's just not, hey, I want to work from home because I don't like driving to the office every day or I want to move to another state where maybe it's cheaper than here in New York. It's usually tied to a medical condition or or protected reason. And then you have to engage in this dialogue with your employee. Just because they say, hey, my doctor says that I really should get XYZ or I really want XYZ for my medical condition, you don't have to give them exactly what they asked for. It's an interactive process to figure out if you can accommodate this request and will it pose an undue hardship on the company. Talk it out. Talk, Talk it, out. it out. Talk it out. Try to figure it out. But Samantha's right. You know, it's, it's often easy to get a healthcare provider is if an employee says, hey, I need, I'm having this trouble at work. I need these accommodations or help. We say, okay, great. Here's an accommodation request form. We don't want to know what your underlying condition is. We just want to know what your restrictions are. 
have your healthcare provider fill us out, send it back to us. And it will let us know, is it permanent? How long? What are your restrictions? Are there any accommodations that you can have aside from leave of absence or work from home? We get it back from the healthcare provider and we analyze it. And we say, okay, we can handle this. We can give you a private office or we can let you work from home two days a week because we've shown we did it before COVID. Right, or we could change your schedule so that your break is closer to the morning or closer to the afternoon. We will change it instead of being at 12. We can make it two o'clock to go along with your need for a little break. No problem. Right. And so, but as you said, though, just because the, the healthcare provider says it's what he or she needs doesn't mean the employer has to do it. You then have to undertake this undue hardship analysis. Now, that's easier said than done. Employers will say, undue hardship, I can't do it. We can't operate. That's really hard. You got to really show, well, we couldn't get a temp. We couldn't get people to cover. It was too expensive because what may be a reasonable accommodation for UPS may not be a reasonable accommodation for a 30-person organization. If you have someone who can't get up the stairs because of some sort of a medical condition or can't walk or really you know, needs to like have an elevator, big organizations might be required like a UPS to, hey, stole an elevator for these people, whereas not for a small, small organization. So undue hardship is a tough analysis. What makes it hard also is a really big fact issue. And employers don't like fact issues because that means you can't dispose of them very quickly. It's up to a judge or jury to decide what's reasonable or not. It's very hard to go there. If you're going to tell an employee, we cannot do this because it creates undue hardship, make sure you consult with your employment lawyer because that's going down a, into a hornet's nest that you better really be able to show it's not the hardship. That goes back to the interactive process. Yes, yes. So if if you have determined as the employer what the employee is requesting is an undue hardship, okay, but what are your alternative options to this employee? What else can you suggest to them that would give them an accommodation, allow them to keep working, but it is not an undue hardship to the company? If there's absolutely nothing that you can think of, okay, then we could have a conversation that it's an undue hardship. But more often than not, there is something that you could at least come back with and say, we could do this, and this is why, or this is how. And then it's up to the employee to say, no, I don't want that. Let them say, no, I don't want that. Sometimes an employer will get back one of those accommodation forms where the healthcare provider will check off the box, the condition's permanent, and there are no accommodations. Well, if that should be the case, then the employer has every right to terminate. Because the employee's got to be able to do the job with or without accommodation, right? So if you have a permanent condition and there are no accommodations to help, what's the employer supposed to do? So in that in that situation, the employer would have sound basis to terminate. One other thing, and I know we've talked about this before in the accommodation process, is this work remote work and what a lot of employees are asking for now. Pre-COVID, that wasn't really even an option. Post-COVID, certainly with employers who have the IT set up and have everything set up for employees to work from home and a job allows for it. And they've done it before. It's really hard to say to an employee that as an accommodation that they can't work from home, even though sometimes employers are saying, oh my God, this is total BS. It's because he or she needs childcare or needs to be home for it. But even if that may be the case in the back of our minds, if the doctor says, hey, they need to work from home because they can't drive for whatever reason, say a broken leg or something for six weeks, employers said, well, okay, we did this before COVID. How can we say no now? That's tough. It opens it up. The fact that we've shown we can often accommodate employees. Right. And, and that a company now has the infrastructure right. in place because of COVID or maybe some other employees in, their, in another department are allowed to work from home. So it's hard to say, well, this department can. Obviously, it depends on what their job is, though. If it's really imperative that this position is in the office and they have never had the opportunity to work from home, 
that's different. Yeah. So everything is fact-specific. Very fact-specific, and that's why you get back to the cooperative dialogue. But now there are just so many more tentacles to it. Right. right. Before, we weren't even considering work from home. Now it's almost part of everyone's accommodation request. It's just it's just harder. It's just, it's just harder. And in a sense, I don't want to make light of it, because it's certainly not going to be very serious. But from an employer's perspective, I say it's sometimes a game, but I, I don't say it in a derogatory way. I say it in a way that you've got to stick with it. It's a real rigorous process. You got to stick with it or else you're not going to be in a position to defend it. And it's onerous and it's difficult. It starts with documenting. Make sure you have reasons for what you're doing and go into that cooperative dialogue. Go into it and explain why you can or can't do certain things. If you do it and you're rigorous with it and you talk it out, if you accommodate, you can. If you can't and you think you can show an undue hardship, then you don't. But that's also, as we said, that's a sticky wicket. If you're going to claim undue hardship, got to be able to show it. That's that with the accommodation process, always, always front and center. How about for me, the whole exempt, not exempt? Now, we've talked about that a lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot. But I would say, so we understand, just so it's, we're back to basics here. Exempt right. means you're salaried and you're exempt from overtime because your duties allow for that. Not exempt means you get overtime, get paid by the hour generally. Another huge misconception. You know where I'm going with it. Go for it. You know where I'm going with it. What's the biggest misconception we're hearing about wage and hour, exempt, not exempt? Come on. Salaried. I know. I was doing a dramatic pause. Oh, my gosh. Dramatic pause. I was th- I th- wow. Th- he th- thought I didn't know. I, I didn't want to put you on the spot. I felt bad. Oh, my gosh. Right, so let's take it. Let's Look, no it. faith in me whatsoever. I have so much faith in you, but I actually <laughs> care for you so much. I didn't want to put you in a bad spot in front of all our listeners. Oh, no. So I've had you back. That's what it Thank is. Thank you. I, well, I appreciate that. I didn't that. realize the pregnant pause. Yeah, it was it was a purposeful pause. Didn't realize. It was a little dramatic. Maybe we could have added some like dun dun dun. Music. I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for it. Got to keep it, you know, lively here. I do. So bring it on. What, what? So the biggest misconception about exempt and non-exempt is that if an employee is paid a salary, people often think that means that they are automatically exempt. That is not true. Again, just because your employee is paid a salary does not mean they are automatically exempt. Right. I mean, it's such a big misconception. So what does that mean? Tell us, Samantha. Tell them. You got, you got to tell tell our listeners because it's Now everyone's still, on the edge of their seat. No, because it's- Because everyone's a, thinking now. It's such a misconception. What the important part of being exempt or non-exempt truly is, is the job that they are doing. An exempt position has certain requirements set by the Department of Labor that if a job meets these specific categories, they can be considered exempt. For example- there's the professional exemption. There's a highly compensated exemption. There's administrative exemption. There's an executive exemption. So an executive might be the easiest to walk through. Think about your CEO of a company. Clearly an executive doing very important things, supervising, firing, overseeing departments, having real core control of your business. A CEO is making a salary and is clearly exempt from overtime. That means if they work one hour a week for you or 100 hours a week from you, you're paying them their salary because of this exemption that they have met based on their job duties. On the other hand, if you have someone like, say, a receptionist at a doctor's office, if you pay this receptionist a salary and say, for the year, this is your salary, awesome, they get paid biweekly, it's great, there's no confusion about what they're being owed, that really is not a position that there is any Department of Labor exemption for. So they are truly a non-exempt employee, even though you're paying them a salary. The second misconception of this is that non-exempt employees cannot be paid salary. That's not true. You can have a salaried, non-exempt, hourly employee, meaning that you take a salary, you kind of back it in, do the calculation of their hourly rate. 
When they hit over 40 hours in a week, you owe them that hourly overtime rate. So it's perfectly fine to pay them a salary. As long as if they hit over 40 hours a week, you're paying them their overtime rate. I would say by and large, though, the people who are exempt get paid salaries and the non-exempts usually get paid hourly. Right. We don't usually see that later example. It's very spot on. We don't usually see it unless people like, "Uh uh-oh, they didn't like understand it, like that they can't pay everybody a salary and avoid overtime. So sometimes it's already in place and we have to figure out how to correct it. So that's like the rarity, but we have seen before non-exempt people being paid a salary and it's just maybe sometimes easier for accounting purposes or payroll purposes. That is very important. Just because you pay someone a salary does not mean that they're automatically exempt. So you gave two examples on two extremes. CEO, clearly exempt. Receptionist, clearly not exempt. Where does the trouble come? It's always the gray areas, right? Assistant managers. Now it's, oh, a manager. Sounds like it's got to be, or she's got to be exempt. But there are certain categories, that, certain duties that you have to have that would make you exempt. And a lot of times it comes under like an administrative exemption. That's one exemption where you have to be in position to use independent discretion and control. That can help me out there. Indiscretion and control. And that, that's a very broad term and subject to interpretation, but that can go either way. And that's where all like the litigation and the gray areas come from. Or, you know, do they supervise two or more people? Do they have the authority to hire or fire? Things like that that all go into the calculus of whether someone's exempt or not exempt. So for your assistant manager, a great example is the hiring and firing. Can they actually make the decision to hire and fire or do they have to make a recommendation to their boss who then will usually take it into advisement and their word has that much weight that it is put into action? Or is it something that, okay, they make the suggestion, then it gets reviewed five times and It's really not, it doesn't really carry that much weight. So that's where the gray areas come in. It really is a nitty gritty review process. It is. What is is the job description on paper versus what are they doing in practice and how does the company treat this person? Right. So you make a good point. Job descriptions, which seem kind of benign in their face and they are, but you can use them to your advantage with this in mind. All right. This position we believe is exempt. Let's look at the exemption that we think this falls under, and then you would put those specific duties in your job description. Mm -hmm. But then that's only one step. The second step is what are they actually doing, like you said. Like, okay, you have it on paper, that helps a lot. What are they actually doing? So just because, again, you call somebody a manager doesn't mean that they are. You you, you really have to examine what their duties are. So at the end of the day, it's a good idea to just do like an internal audit, just to, okay, see what your positions are, see what the job descriptions say and see if they match up to any exemption. Okay, so you're right. It's definitely a big misconception. But one of the issues we're having with the start of the new year here in New York is the raise of the baseline for the exemption. Mm -hmm. So New York raised the minimum exemption. I think it's $1,200 a week, $64,000 a year. It raised it a few hundred dollars from last year. So in order to maintain the exemption, there's a minimum that employees have to be paid. New York City and NASA and Suffolk here on Long Island is $62,400. Right, right. there we go. $1,200 a week. $1,200 a week, right. So $62,400. And previously, the same positions may be paid, whatever it was last year, $58,000 or it was a few thousand dollars less. All of a sudden, you don't have that exemption anymore if you don't give these people a raise to get up to the what the exemption is now. So I think that's another misconception is just because someone's paid a salary and they are technically exempt under the categories, if you're not paying them the correct salary, they could actually be automatically non-exempt. So it's a twofold. It's one, what are you paying them? And did you meet the minimum threshold? Okay, great. Next step, 
are they doing a duty that falls under one of the exemptions for the Department of Labor? So it's a two-part analysis. It is a two-part analysis, and sometimes people forget about that. And it's caused a little bit of havoc with the with the raise of the baseline salary and the exemptions this year because employers put in the position of, oh, do I want to pay this person another few thousand dollars a year because that's what the law requires now? Sometimes employers don't want to do that. But you really, really, really got to get it right. You know when it could become an issue is when we have we have really highly paid folks who really make, you know could make seven figures in commissions. We just had this this issue come up, but it wasn't an outside sales, which is another exemption. It, it was an inside sales position, non exempt. So they either got to make the threshold, the salary threshold, or you got to pay them you know, non-exempt. If you want them to, these high-earning inside salesmen positioned to remain, try to make them exempt, you got to at least pay them the baseline salary. If you're wrong with that, it's extreme exposure because you're making so much money and that would turn into an hourly rate if they're working overtime that you'd have obligated to pay if you were wrong on the classific- misclassification. Right. So we just got to really make sure that we get that salary threshold. And if we do, that the analysis is spot on, that it is indeed exempt. Another similar back to basics that we talk about a lot is, well, what happens if you realize you're wrong in the exemption yeah. and you have to change somebody from an exempt to a non-exempt? Oh, yes. That's a, that is a... That's a tough our, one. That's a bane of our existence. It really is, example. actually. That's a good one. That's a good one. I wasn't thinking about that. So when you take our advice and do your analysis of whether someone's exempt or non-exempt, and you realize maybe a position that you've been paying salaried, non-exempt, meaning they're not getting overtime, they work however many hours a week, and you pay them their flat salary, if you realize maybe they don't fall into an exemption and they should have been a non-exempt hourly employee, what do you do? Because what's the first question... That an employee probably will ask, oh, okay, now I'm hourly and I get overtime. What about the last six years when I was working 100 hours a week getting paid a salary? Where's my overtime for that? And you know what? They're right. They're right. So it creates a conundrum for employers. It really does. And there are a lot of ways to handle it that are handled on a case-by-case basis, but it's definitely a difficult issue. You know, one way employers handle it sometimes is, okay, we're going to make the change for various reasons, and we're going to give you this amount of money, even though we're not sure we have to, but we want to release an exchange. So this way, we're covered going backwards, at least, as an right. employer. You're not you're not going to get hit with a, a big lawsuit that going back six years of statute of limitations in New York. You know, you at least maybe try to get a release when you do that. You could try. But that's always a tricky spot. I do think we talked about this on the last episode. Even the feeling of being changed from an exempt to a non-exempt employee can be difficult sometimes. Right. I do think we talked about this last episode of, you know, there is just something about not having to clock in and out and right. do do your own thing and, and all of that. There's and, a little bit of a stigma. Yeah. That. Rightfully or right or wrong, there was just there's something about having to punch a clock and clock in and out for lunch and clock in out when you go for a break or things like that. Well, you generally don't like to do that. So if they're being all of a sudden change from kind of being free as a bird, come and go when you want as an exempt right. employee to, oh boy, I got to account for every minute of my time. And they're not particularly happy about that. And that is also what could lead to, all right, well, if you can make me do this and I'm now I'm getting overtime, what happened to all these other years when I should have gotten overtime? So even though the change was really purely legal, from a legal standpoint, the change had to be made, it is still a difficult conversation to have with employees and, and to actually put into place. It is. It really is. So that's why really, really important stay on top of it. So I guess just because I use the example about inside sales, commissions, highly paid, just real quick point on commissions and commission agreements. We're seeing this a lot also where folks are paid on commission, but employers don't have commission agreements in writing, which is required. And if you don't have it in writing, all inferences are going to go against the employer and it's going to go based upon what the 
employee says. So it's really important to have your commission agreements in writing, explain what the commissions are, when they are earned, and earned is capitalized, has to be defined. When is a commission earned? It's really, really so important to do that. So clearly it's going to be, you know, when you make your sale, then is it going to be when the company is paid on the sale? Typically it is. And do you have to be employed at the time the commission's due to be paid? So for example, say you pay your commissions the 15th of the following month. So I earned commissions of $50,000. It was made, sale was made, the company was paid, but the commission is not due to be paid to the following month on the 15th of March. That's fine. But they terminate me on February 14th, Valentine's Day. Not very nice. Am I still entitled to my commission on the 15th? It depends how you define it, of, of when it's earned. If you define earned as being, you have to be on payroll at the time commission is due to be paid, then no, you're not entitled to it. Sounds a little bit draconian. That's how it is. That could be challenged. It really could be challenged, but technically that is what it is. So you have to think long and hard about, okay, when is a commission earned? Maybe commission's earned is when the sale is made and the company's paid for it. And whether you're terminated or not, you're going to get your commissions eventually when, you know, when they're, when they become due. So, you know, it's important to navigate, okay, what happens upon termination? That's a big one. You got to have it clear if you have it in writing. So just want to point that out, the commission agreements, let's make sure that's all buttoned up. That's a good so, one. so many people are commissions. I think along similar lines, we've been talking a lot about various agreements lately. Yes. Whether it's an employment agreement, a non-solicitation or non-compete agreement, a confidentiality agreement, those have been very big lately. Yes. You've been so, doing a lot of them, right? Yes. Start of the year, everyone's trying to put their best foot forward. So it's still a great time right now to get those drafted and, and send those out. But it's just a little refresher. They all serve different purposes, and a lot of times it depends on your workforce or even different levels within the same company. Maybe everybody gets a confidentiality agreement. No matter what, when you're employed, you have to sign this saying, you won't take our secret sauce somewhere else if you leave or while you're here. You can't take our information and use it for a purpose other than work-related approved purposes. That's great for everybody. The next level up, I would say, are non-compete and non-solicitation agreements meaning that either while you're working here or for a set period of time after you work here, you cannot work for a competing business. Also something that has to be defined and tailored to your industry. A non-solicitation could be for clients or for vendors or for other employees in the company. You don't want your current employee taking those different categories with them, either when they start their own competing business or when they go work for a competitor, perhaps. So those are all different things you have to keep in mind, and all agreements are drafted differently depending on your needs. There's a lot of different variables that go into those, so I won't go into the nitty-gritty of them, but generally, that's the concept of it. Right. It, it's, it's kind of a sliding scale. Right. right. You know, so maybe the lower-level employees, everyone's got to sign you know, a standard confidentiality agreement, but then as you get up the ranks, you may want to tighten it up in more. You may want to throw in the non-compete language, things like that. You've heard us talk ad nauseum about non-compete agreements. We're going to save you. We're not going to go into it on this podcast about the enforceability of non-competes and the drafting of them, but we've spoken about them so often. But yes, they, they very often, as you go up the, the scale, the ranks, you do throw in those more covenants that are more restrictive along a non-compete level. Right. And then we have our employment agreements that are really everything that we just talked about in one agreement much. And it sets the terms of the employment, the payment of the employment. Sometimes we'll see that they're set for a set period of time. We're in New York, obviously we're an at-will state of employment, but sometimes employment agreements even drafted in New York will have a set term to them. And then there's all this language about, well, if it's a set term, how does it come to an end if 
both parties are not happy with the situation or if one party's not happy with the situation. And that's maybe a whole nother that's a whole podcast. other podcast. That's a whole <laughs> terminating for cause or poor reasons for good reason. Yeah, that's probably a, another whole issue. But yeah, so it, it, agreements, it could be very useful telling them the way you think they need to be tailored for the benefits of your organization. So I think kind of part and parcel of that are awful letters. Now, that's one of my big things I've heard me talk about. You really can use that awful letter to your advantage. I think it's just so important because you can not only lay out what the position is going to be, what they're going to do, and who they're going to report to, and, and benefits and things like that. But number one, you can have certain conditions that you want to just make sure we're cool with before we even have the ability to commence employment. For instance, you want a representation in your offer letter that this employee is not bound by another kind of compete agreement. Last thing in the world you want to do is hire someone and then get sued for tortious interference because they have an agreement that stops them from doing their duties. You want a representation somewhere or by signing the offer letter that, hey, they're free to go. So mm-hmm. without any restrictions, you may want to see it. You may want to see it. Do they have any contracts? You want to see it. That protects you because if you do get sued, you say, hey, wait a minute. We didn't know about it. We did everything we could. You got to certify that you're not subject to not compete. You don't have any of your employer's confidential information, your prior employer. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't want that. We don't. That's really important. Really, but we don't want prior employer's confidential information. We want you for your talents and your abilities. We don't want anything else. Keep it. <laughs> Stay. Leave. And that includes customer lists and client lists, everything like that. I mean, you can replicate it. Don't send it to your emails. Don't do any of that. We don't want it. We'll figure it out. So it's a good thing in an awful letter. Again, it's a tool that helps you because if you do get sued, you can say, look, we tried. We said we don't want you to breach your prior employer's agreement and we don't want your, any of your confidential information. So that's a good thing. And so there are other things. You've heard us talk about arbitration agreements time and time again. Make that a condition of employment. You can start but not to assign our arbitration. Handbooks, you can start, but you got to certify reviewed our handbook. Your I-9 compliant. Anything, background checks, you're going right. to get a background check. Anything that you as an employer want to have done before they start, list it in your offer letter. This way, there's no mistake about it from either side. Sorry, you can't start, but you didn't do this. Right, and then that protects the company because let's say it's listed, someone couldn't abide by it, they couldn't follow through. Then they turn around and say, you're not hiring me. It's because of XYZ protected characteristic. Right. Not that they didn't follow through on their condition of employment. So if you don't have that written, they could try to drum up some reason that they're not being hired. Exactly. Exactly. Very, very important. It's definitely, definitely good. Good defense. And that happens a good defense if, you know, another employer sues you for interfering with any sort of contract or business relations as well of hiring that employee. One more comment for me about arbitration groups, which you know I'm a very big fan of, especially for class action waivers and things like that. Employers should be aware. One of the only downsides is the employer has to pay for it. They don't have to pay for the employee's legal fees. They have to pay for filing fees if it's over and above what cost to file in court at any fees, like arbitrator fees, any fees associated with the arbitration, the employee's got to pay for. So that can become expensive. One arbitrator, two or three, or arbitrators are very expensive, thousands, thousands, thousands of dollars. So that is the downside. If you have these arbitration agreements, I love them, but just be aware if you have a problem and you have you know, three or four employees all of a sudden file for arbitration, that's great. They can't file a court. They can't do it as a class action. That's wonderful. But you're going to have to pay for three or four separate arbitrations. It's a premium on having an arbitration it, agreement. It is, but I think it's worth it. If you can afford it, it's worth it. But just something to think of. I think that's a great point. Maybe a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. That's the trade-off. Of that's the trade-off. That's the trade-off. And sometimes I'm remiss in not talking about that mm-hmm. you know, to employers. I think it's such a good idea and it provides so much protection that downside is, well, last thing. I just came recently. Workers' comp. 
sometimes we get the issue of, well, do we let the employee work, file for workers' comp as a result? What happened? Is it a qualifying event? So on and so forth. That's not for us to determine. Generally, anything happens in the workplace, let the employee file for workers' comp. It's not for us to be the arbiter of that. So just let them file. It's not always a bad thing because it does become the exclusive remedy for at least negligence claims. So what does that mean? If an employee files for workers' comp and goes ahead and then sues the employer for, say, negligent hiring, negligent supervision, any sort of negligence claims barred by workers' compensation, they can't sue you. Exclusive remedy. That's a good thing. That's a good, a good thing, thing, right? So yeah, your rating may go up, but you don't have to worry about any sort of negligent this, negligent that. Covered by workers' comp. But workers' comp doesn't cover intentional claims like intentional infliction of emotional distress or discrimination or any of that. Those are will remain alive in, in courts or arbitrations. But anything negligence related goes to workers' comp. Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. But have that and go through a jury because then you never know what could happen. That's a good point. Anything else that, back to basics that we missed in our kind of rapid fire discussion here? I think we hit a lot of them, if not all of the basics. We did, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we could talk about handbooks anymore. No more. No that more. is a basic of Employment Law 101. No more. We are not allowed to talk about them anymore. I don't think we talk about <laughs> them or restrictive covenants anymore. We've done. We've just beaten them to death. Yeah. I, I don't think we're allowed to. We're allowed we might to. have like a limit by Spotify that we have said the words too much. Too much. Set up a bad algorithm, right? <laughs> so, but now it's time. You know, it's always like, I always like to get through the law stuff and then we can talk about the better stuff. I mean, maybe we should just have a podcast of the whole water cooler talk. Maybe we could do that. Like, do you think we would become like really podcast superstars if we just had water cooler talk all the time? But then I would become more of an influencer than I already am. Yeah, but is that a bad thing? No, I don't think it is. We, we could get some sponsored content. We could get some ad reads. There's a lot of requests for that. We could do it. We can I mean, try to do it. Look, we could have a whole nother career ahead of us. We nah. just become influencers. No, nah, we like what we do too much, though. What, what would our employer clients do without us? I know. What would they do? I don't know. They that, could come visit us on our private island that, that we'll afford by our influencing. That's right. <laughs> so because we're going to be so wealthy and maybe you can be on a private island, let's talk about, because summer's not here yet, but it's starting to see it. Not really. Well, spring, not really. Not really. <laughs> spring. At least spring. Give me a, a little bit. But at least it's start, start time starting to get to the time to maybe you want to plan a little nice getaway weekend. I'm not talking anything elaborate. I'm not talking Europe, Europe. I'm talking you're here in New York. That's where we're broadcasting from. So anywhere in the tri-state area, you know, mm -hmm. New York, New Jersey, a listening area, right? New York City, Long Island. Yeah. You, you, you want to get like away a long weekend destination. Long weekend. You know, you, you, had, you, know, you spent the week figuring out the classifications and the misclassifications, the audits and the non-audit, you know, non-exempt, exempt, salary, non -exempt, and you're so tired that you just want to get away with whoever, your friend, your wife, your husband, Beyonce, in your case, Samantha, mm. where are you going? Have you been? Have you been any place you like that you recommend that you want to go that you think would make you know you leave on a Thursday night or even a Friday after work and you come back Sunday and Monday? Well, we did just travel to Charleston, which requires a plane ride. But that's a great long weekend destination oh my from God, the New York area. You took that from me. Not that I've been there. You know that I was just there. I know you were there, but I was thinking for our my wife and I's sixth anniversary over Memorial Day, we were going to Charleston. Never been. I mean, I told you how great of a time we had there. Yes. It was really fantastic. Great food, lots to do, lots to see. Definitely a walking city. So the weather does play a role in it. Like if it's raining all day, that does kind of sting. But it was great. We had a great time. It's a quick flight. And it was so much fun. And we ate a lot. You know, is, that, is that part of a long weekend usually? Oh, yeah. All you do is walk around and eat. And it was great. We went to a lot of bars, had some great cocktails, had some great food. 
did some sightseeing. We're to a, on a plantation tour. We both like to learn a lot about history and, and just learn about the city that we go to and visit. And it was really fabulous. Yeah, that's on my list. I'm going to try to do it for Memorial Day. We're going to Nashville. Have you been to Nashville? I haven't. You know, we're both huge country music fans. Yeah, we're big country music fans. And, you know, we have our, our listeners, you know, on our firm country playlist. So I get a little pushback on Nashville because I've been. Oh, you have? Yeah, I have. Oh, and you are more of an influencer than I thought. Yeah, I have. <laughs> I don't love it as much as everyone else. It is strictly two nights, maybe three. And then it just becomes too much? Well, or there's one, just not a lot to do? Right. There's one strip mm-hmm. of like the bars and the music and the food, which is fantastic. It definitely takes you through two nights. You get there on a Friday. You go. You do the strip. You have dinner. You wake up the next day. You kind of do the same thing. And yeah, there were some excursions like the Grand Ole Opera House and things like that. Oh, right. And, you know, so definitely something if you're a hockey fan, Natural Predators, maybe the Islands are playing there. Time it right. You can see a right. hockey game. That's a little fun. So people love it. It's a great getaway. But here's the thing. I went to school in New Orleans. Oh. And to me, it's like New Orleans light in a way. Yeah, New Orleans is in country music, but it's just so much more than just one strip. You know, it's a whole city of music and jazz and food and, and the cultures major culture yeah yeah so i think that's what about what... alligator tours did you ever do an alligator tour in college never did that i was really i didn't want to risk myself no i feel like that's just it's, part of yeah, it yeah the swamp tours people love the swamp tours in louisiana right yeah. good stuff so that's good stuff so i think new orleans is a great one weekend place too honestly yeah you know, because be fun. you know you don't want to go there too long you know good three nights in new orleans no problem Right, you get to see enough, get an see experience. Enough, you got bourbon, you know, you got French Quarter, you have Uptown, you can't do Tulane Campus, all that stuff. So that's, that's real good. So I like that. I've got a place for you that don't have to hop on a plane. Really cute little quaint. Where are we going? Rhinebeck. Oh, that's a good one. Upstate New York. So charming. Great little spas and great restaurants and shopping. Really good one or two day getaway. Upstate is really a hidden gem. It is. It's not so hidden, but it's really a gem. It really, really is. Have you been to the Mohawk Mountain House in Newport? I have not been, but I know of it. That's another one. Yeah. That's another one. Take a day trip because it's very expensive. Mohawk Mountain House, beautiful grounds and hiking and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But they have day passes and they have all these wonderful hiking trails and mountains, things like that. And a lake with canoes and, and rowboats. And you just get a day pass. Very affordable. It's only an hour and chain, hour and a half about from New York. Right. It's not bad at all. Not great. Not bad at all. Great little activity, great day trip. Right. I love Greenport. Oh, my God. You want to take that? Me too. Oh, man. That's North Shore. Yeah. Well, all the way out there. but yeah. All the way out there. But so good. Right. I mean, it's either Greenport or going to Montauk, right? I mean, so, the, I mean, the wineries on the North Shore of, of Long Island, you know, out, out they east. They can't be beat. North Fork. I mean. We are very lucky to live here. We are. Right? I, I always, I feel like Long Island is a great recreational place to live, but it's incredibly impossible otherwise traffic traffic costs everything (laughs) getting out of long island like you can't i always say like if we didn't have to leave long island life would be wonderful don't have to deal with any bridges maybe we'll back up on the the lie by the cross island parkway but other than that everything's good we have beaches we got concerts we got jones beach a lot of things going on here on long island you know we can we have the ocean we have the bay have everything but anytime you gotta leave it it's a nightmare yeah. Hours, GW Bridge, Broadnet, Whitestone. It's completely disaster. So we stay here recreationally. We're good <laughs> to go. Fire Island, great weekend trip. Oh, Fire yeah. Island, great weekend trip. A little ferry ride. Sure. Even a day trip. Either one. So great. Another, another good thing. Another good thing. I love the North Fork and the wineries and the inns out there and some really good lobster rolls. Yeah, you really can't good. beat it. Yeah. Right, right, right. And we're lucky that we could go all year round instead of, you know, we don't have to do just the summer weekend if we're traveling from somewhere else. We can go just for the day, which is great, or 
We could go in the fall. We could check it out in the spring, even in the winter if you're feeling adventurous. Yeah, it's very versatile. Right. North Fork. Inside wineries. Yeah. Little tasting room. Can't beat it. No, it's a beautiful thing. Try to think. Any other like long weekend places we'd recommend, like little little jaunts? uh, I mean, uh, Boston's always fun. That's a little further. A little further. But Cape Cod and Nantucket, those places are wonderful. You know, I've never been. You've never been to Nantucket? No. I am the man from Nantucket. Have you ever seen that t shirt, man from Nantucket? No. No. Sorry. So, yeah, Martha's Martha's Vineyard's fantastic. Shelter Island, right here along Island, take the ferry over. Oh, yeah. Very charming, very cute. Lots of like long weekend places because sometimes it's hard to get away for like a long stretch. We're all so busy, but sometimes it's not that hard. You can just get in your car and go book something. Friday at three o'clock, come out, leave a little early, head out, you're where you need to be in a couple hours. Man, but if you want to talk about traffic, Try sitting on the roads on a summer Friday trying to get out east. True. That's traffic. It's worth it. So you leave a little early. Leave a little early. I'll give you permission. Anyone needs a a note from their lawyer? They got to work early? Let me know. I'll give you a note. All right. So anyone who calls me after like two o'clock on summer Fridays and you can't reach me, it's because Guy just said I could take off. Exactly. I got you. So call Guy. I got you. I'm ready. (laughs) All right. So I think that's anything else. I I think that's all I can really. The ins and outs of Employment Law 101. Yeah. So I thought it was a good idea just to get back to the basics. We just keep hearing the same things over and over again. There haven't been any earth shattering changes in the law since we last broadcast. So I thought that was good. Now we not so we know the basics. Now that we're exhausted from that, we know where to go away if we have. Now little, if you need little, to rest and recover, John, we can all get ready for Samantha's wedding. I will keep everybody updated on that. Where we where we I are. might live podcast for my wedding one day. Very good chance of that happening. <laughs> Certainly during the ceremony, at least. But I'll keep you up to date how that's going. I'm sure everybody will want to know. And uh, anyone have any suggestions for Samantha about where she should get married or things like that? We'll take that too. Right, we might, we might start a wedding fund. Yeah, see how it goes. Any honeymoon recommendations? We're open. We're open for suggestions. Let's go. Let's do that. I'm sure we'll get some good recommendations. Well, as always, fun to be with you guys. Fun to be with everybody. We will swear we were like mid-end February. Yeah. I'm thinking we'll come back at you early March. It's in March. What do you think? Does that make sense? Even though it's March could be a fake outbreak out because it could be you think you're there, but then it's, you get a big then snowstorm. Then you have a snowstorm. <laughs> right. I mean, baseball opening day, we've had snowstorms before. It's crazy. Right. right? So don't get too excited, but definitely. It's on the horizon. Definitely. When you come, we come back to you in March. It's fair to say that spring is around the corner. Yes. Not yet. We'll come back to you at March. Sounds good. Sounds good. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Samantha, as always, been a pleasure. All right. See you later. Bye.